I took two weeks off of work because I knew my burnout was starting to make my mental energy taper. I was delivering mediocre work and mediocre attitude because I hadn't been prioritizing proper rest. I'm sitting at my desk right now with some iced coffee and sumo oranges and a space heater lightly toasting my back. And I just feel so much more refreshed and glorious. During my time off, I went to the botanical gardens at Golden Gate Park. I tried making chicken tikka masala at home. I bought a pair of Everlane jeans off of Depop and they should be arriving sometime this week. I journaled a ton and I also listened to an old interview recording I saved back in January 2021. It's a conversation I shared with my good friend Shannon. You'll be hearing that conversation today. I can hear you now. I always forget that the Bluetooth like times out if I'm not using them. Hi. This is Shannon May. She was my college professor back when I had just turned 19. She's an art director at Google, the founder of Domi Pins, an enthusiastic advocate for all emerging artists, and most importantly, she's a really good friend. This Google Hangouts call was recorded back in early 2021, so it's been a while. But I still felt like the conversation we shared was relevant to burnout and imposter syndrome and also confidence. I often feel like when I'm lacking confidence in myself and my work, my imposter syndrome tends to loom a little harder. So I resurrected this from my drive archives and assembled it here. We'll talk about honesty and authenticity in a work and corporate environment, finding confidence as artists, and being kind to ourselves. As I was working, I realized that age 23 and 24 for me, especially last year, it was just full of imposter syndrome and I felt like Mm -hmm. I didn't have a proper role in the workspace or I felt like even if I did, I, I felt like someone could do it better and anyone could come replace me and that I was a disposable artist. Let's bring ourselves back to the present time for just a moment. I was 24 going on 25 during this conversation and I had just started a new job. It's so interesting for me to hear a younger version of myself recollect an even younger version of myself. And it honestly breaks my heart a little bit to hear the lack of confidence and security I had. I mean, 23 to 24 feels like baby years. Maybe I'm still a baby now. I mean, I'm 26 going on 27 and I still feel like I don't know what the heck I'm doing or what's going on half the time. But 23 and 24 is even younger and I think it's the perfect time to experiment and learn and even be a bit sloppy. It's also oddly comforting to hear my past self going through the same ebb and flow I'm going through now because I now have the hindsight to know that things will turn out okay. And this ripples into hope for the present. I do feel like a lot of reassurance in the unknown bloomed in the past couple of years. I feel way more comfortable with ambiguity now. It's also interesting to hear this younger version of myself contemplate and reflect on her growth because now I actually see the new avenues that specific growth has actually brought forth. Okay, now back to the recording. Whereas now i feel like not necessarily because of the company i'm working at but because of how i feel about myself Mm -hmm. i I think i'm in a space where 
I feel a little bit more empowered and I know what I'm doing. Uh, maybe mm. it's just time and experience mm. that has afforded me that, but at the same time, I think it's perfect that I was able to attain that as I went to my new job. Mm-hmm. And so currently, I feel pretty good about it. Good. Well, I will tell you, you are not easily replaced. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I totally understand that feeling and have experienced it myself. And I think when I first started at Google, I felt the same way. I felt like I was supposed to know everything and I knew nothing. And I was scared to ask questions because I thought I'd look stupid. And, you know, I I was like, why, like, why me? I don't deserve to be here. Um, And I think, I think it is something that comes with time where we're afraid to ask those questions because we're insecure, I think, you know, and as you grow up, you become more and more secure and confident. And so it's like, I no longer have anything to prove to other people, right? Like you, you are, you've proven it to yourself. And so I think, you know, you end up feeling more confident. I don't know. Anyway, I feel you and I'm happy to talk to you about it. I think also I've always felt like vulnerability and softness were my strengths, but a lot of Mm -hmm. times in a corporate environment, it feels like it's otherwise or that it's not welcome. Mm. But I see you yeah. constantly lead conversations revolving around art and vulnerability and how that lends to more conversations about accessibility too. And that just mm-hmm. made me realize there is a space for me here and I do have something to offer. And I, I think you just being really raw and honest about your career trajectory helped me feel more hopeful about mine and also feel like Mm -hmm. there's definitely a space for illustrators in this industry too. I'm glad that whatever I'm doing is able to help someone in some way. I really appreciate hearing it. It's nice. Um, Yeah, I guess like at a certain point I realized that like we're all insecure and weird and have feelings and like I think you're right that a lot of corporate environments don't and I think Google is better at it than others, but like a lot of corporate environments don't create space for that. But realizing that, you know, if you're feeling it, somebody else is probably feeling it too, right? Yeah. And so being the first one to to speak up and to have that conversation empowers other folks to to do so. And what you end up finding is like everybody feels that way. And we're all just insecure and put up this sort of facade and pretend like we know everything and you know we're the expert and it's like I don't know I think there's a lot more power in being honest and truthful about the fact that you're not the expert and like being able to ask for help ends up making you better right because you're like asking and learning but then also the things that we build better because you know you're not just trying to do it in a silo with like your own skill set you're like asking questions and bringing other people into the conversation um, and so I feel like we end up creating work that is more powerful than it would be if we like didn't do that. So yeah, it's nice to hear that. I It's something that matters to me a lot. Um, I also, I'm just like bad at like not being honest, I think. Um, <laughs> like there are probably conversations, especially with leadership, where I'm like maybe a little too honest. Uh, well, I don't know. I actually don't really believe in that. But you know, there may be some situations where like politically it would be some folks might say I should have shut my mouth or something, but it's never come back to haunt me. Like it's always having that honest conversation has, has always been a pro. And like, it might not seem it at first, 
Um, but I think that like that honesty and vulnerability ends up coming back around. Like people, people remember that and it resonates with them. And so I think they're more likely to then come to you for whatever thing is, right? Like whether it's advice on illustration stuff or maybe it's even like a new opportunity, right? Like they feel that connection. And so there's like something, a stronger bond there than would be if, you know, you weren't being vulnerable, I think. So, um, but yeah, I think in general, I just like don't have a filter for that stuff. (laughs) I feel Um, like that's so courageous because you're, your authenticity leads to all these new opportunities and more and more conversations with really cool people. Mm-hmm. In the past, I took on a more reticent stance where I just tried to stay diplomatic because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And as I advance into my career, I realized that staying pleasant doesn't necessarily guarantee a pleasant outcome. And mm-hmm. I need to speak up when I feel like it's necessary. Yeah, you have to advocate for yourself. And I think also, I mean, I've always felt as a woman, like we're kind of taught to smooth over the situation and like not make waves and not, you know, we're like the mediators um, and kind of treated that way, I think, by society. And so I think we have a particularly difficult time standing up for ourselves and and advocating for ourselves. And so I think we, we have just that much more to fight against, you know, to get to that point of being able to, to do that. Um, So I'm, it took me, I'm what, I'm 34, so I'm what, like 10 years older than you. Crazy. Uh, it's not that much, actually. But um, I feel like I've, I've only come into that recently. And so um, the fact that you're thinking about these things and having that conversation with yourself and and in a, in a point in your life where you feel like you're starting to turn that around, I think you're ahead of the game, at least compared to me. I feel like I'm always such a hot mess. So hearing that from you means so much. Oh my gosh, you seem like one of the most put together people I know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll jump into the formal questions. What intimidated you as a 25-year-old that no longer holds you back? Did time simply melt its weight or did you actively try to dismantle it? I've always been the kind of person that kind of just went with the flow. So I don't know that there was anything consciously holding me back. I mean, I definitely was insecure, unsure of myself. Um, I'm trying to think, what was I like when I was 25? I (laughs) I guess I just graduated from college. I was a year out of school. I had moved to San Francisco, didn't know anybody here. I basically just got in my car, drove across the country. Um, I didn't have a place to live originally and I didn't have a job. Um, I had just graduated after my teachers had told me that I was never going to be a successful illustrator. And so I think I kind of started my career at like this sort of rock rock bottom where I had no expectations, really. I had kind of come to terms with the fact that maybe I would never make it as an illustrator. Maybe, you know, my freelance career was over and, um, you know, I would need to figure something else out. So. I guess I wasn't really holding myself to any kind of preconceived expectation of like what my life was supposed to be like at that point and was accepting of the place that I was at um, in that way, right? Like I had already kind of had those dreams dashed in a way. Um, So yeah, it was sort of like a fresh start. I mean, also being in a new city. Um, And so, yeah, I think I just kind of came at it as like a, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm going to put myself out there as much as I can. And that's the best I can do, right? Like you can't 
control external factors. All you can really do is, is control your own actions and feelings. And so I'm going to do that. Um, and I think that, so I, I guess maybe what I'm saying is like, there wasn't anything really holding me back at that point. Like I was just sort of doing what I was doing and like hoping things happened. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> it does. It does. Do you feel like you had any mean thoughts about yourself at that age? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I still have mean thoughts. Those, I don't know. I, if you find a way to get rid of those forever, please let me know because it's something I think you, I fight on a daily basis, you know, like I'll have a meeting and it didn't go exactly the way I wanted and I'll make it, oh, well, I, you know, if I had just prepared more, if I had said this, you have to take a step back and kind of say like, I did my best in that moment, learn from it, move on to the next thing. Um, yeah, I definitely had, had mean thoughts. I constantly compared myself to my peers, um, other folks that, you know, were starting their careers at the same time as freelance illustrators uh, were, oh, they're more successful or, oh, their work is so much better than mine. I should work harder. I don't work hard enough. I'm lazy, you know, and like just beating yourself up. Yeah, I still feel that way sometimes. So I don't know if that goes away. I, I do think you have to let yourself think those things and then look at why you're saying that, like be objective about it. And then ask yourself if it's true, you know, like, am I saying this because, you know, I really did mess up in that meeting or am I saying it because that person just isn't going to respond the way that I want them to, right? Like, I think I'm, I'm a little bit of a control freak where I want to make it my problem and about me because I can fix that. Um, and so it's easier than making it about somebody else, like somebody else did something that um, created that outcome. I have to fight against that and remember that like I can't control everything and like be okay with that and um, just kind of move on. I really relate to how you say that you're sort of a control freak in the way that um, you'd rather place blame on yourself rather than see it as a projection of the other person. Sometimes that's easier thinking that, oh, well, most of the time, a lot of responses are Within a corporate environment, it could actually be just about the project initiative, really. But even outside mm -hmm. of corporate guidelines, if someone says something mean, it's a projection of their own emotional state, really. But it's mm -hmm. hard for me to absorb that because I would rather have it be about myself so I have the chance to fix it more quickly. Yeah, you make a great point. It is usually actually their own insecurity that that is triggering whatever mean thing they said um and actually it's it's generally not about you at all um it's them really targeting themselves um but even so like i still internalize that stuff because it feeds into the narrative that i've built there's like the two sides there's the positive side of my narrative in my mind and there's the negative side and so if there's enough stuff that people are saying or doing that's feeding into the negative side or like that story that you tell yourself I'm lazy, I'm not good enough, I'm, you know, I'm a bad daughter, I'm a bad friend, like all of those things. Um, it's like if what that person says like resonates with that negative narrative that you tell about yourself, it like feeds it, you know? And so, I don't know, it's like you have to change the narrative or take control at least of the narrative. Remember that it's actually, it's about them and like they don't know that narrative actually about you. I think that's super oh. hard 
um, remembering that you're the one in control of your own narrative, especially mm-hmm. because we feel like often we're not the main character in our own story, even though we are. It sometimes feel mm-hmm. like we bleed into the sidelines. Yeah, I think that's something I still struggle with, like actually taking control of that. Um, again, I feel like I've always sort of just like gone with the flow, even career-wise. Um, you know, I didn't. Aside from wanting to be a freelance illustrator, like that was kind of all I had. You know, like, and I pursued that, and and. But like in terms of the rest of my career, like working at the San Francisco Chronicle, teaching at CCA, ending up at Google, like none of those were things that I actively pursued. So it just felt like things happening to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I've sort of felt like I'm on the sidelines of my own story too. I think I, I also struggle with just taking up space in the world at all, if that makes sense. Like, I have, like I always wanna be as small as possible um, and again, I don't know if this is like a thing that as a woman I've internalized from like just society of like, you know, don't speak up, you know, seem not heard. Um, or if it's just something that's like inherent to my personality. I was always a quiet kid. Um, I didn't like to be the center of attention. Um, I, I w- always felt like I was an observer and not somebody that like took action or, or participated in things like even family gatherings like Christmas like I was on the sidelines watching I wasn't in the midst of it um so yeah I I did make a conscious effort at one point uh, a couple of years ago to take up as much space as I deserve like I'm tired of getting out of the way for other people I'm tired of accommodating their needs and ignoring my own um and I, I it was a conscious choice um, and I, I, I'm still working on it, right? Like it's really hard um, uh, to advocate for yourself and to, because again, I think I don't want to, I want to make it too much about gender, but I, again, I do think women have a harder time with this, right? You kind of have to fight for that space as a woman. Um, you're not just granted it, um, and so it's that much harder. And sometimes you are stepping on other people's toes to do that. And I hate that. I don't. I don't want to make other people feel bad, right? And sometimes, well, I guess what I realized was that I sh- they shouldn't feel bad about me taking up the space I deserve. And if that makes them feel bad, then again, that's kind of on them, right? That's that's on society. That's on whatever their like internalized patriarchal attitudes are. Um, that's something for them to deal with, and not for me to solve. Um, I'm like (laughs) tearing up a little because I relate to that so much and for a really long time being invisible being agreeable being like friendly Mm -hmm. those were adjectives that I felt like I had to constantly thrive off of anything else would be too loud Um, Mm -hmm. and I think I agree with um, how you say that it's so much harder for women to take up space um, because mm-hmm. it takes so much more courage because I, I don't think there are a lot of safe spaces to do so. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky where I've worked at corporations or corporate environments that have allowed me to do so, but mm-hmm. I still see a lot of my female um, friends who are in the workforce that are unfortunately not supported by that kind of environment. 
and they're constantly struggling within it because it's still very much a boys club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fight. We're still fighting, right? Um, And yeah, I feel very grateful to work at a place that I think is at least open to having that conversation and trying to fix it. A lot of places haven't even gotten to that point, right? They're still stuck in their old ways and not even, they don't even necessarily realize it's a problem. What has become important for you now more than ever? Um, Not work, like everything outside of work. Um, I think I, for a long time, my identity was tied up in my work. Um, Maybe it's still true to some extent, but I think I'm, I'm finding ways to enjoy life that like isn't related to my job like gardening you know um or even accepting um times when i'm not being productive um i used to get really depressed if i wasn't just like constantly making something or even even like cleaning or you know like doing something that felt productive and checked something off a box um and i think um I've learned to kind of let go of that constant need. And again, maybe it com- comes from like a, a level of like self-assurance and confidence of like not having anything to prove to anyone anymore. Um, yeah. What was your original question? <laughs> I just went on a tangent. No, it's, I mean, tangents are fine too. I think that's the general consistent theme of my podcast they're just a string of tangents <laughs> oh it was what's more important to me now more than ever yes. um yeah like the not the not work stuff um yeah i have learned i think to value myself beyond that accepting myself without those like titles or just like again that story that you tell yourself right like i am an illustrator i am an art director i am a teacher i am whatever these things so so when that gets taken away it sometimes feels like your personality is taken away and like your purpose is taken away. And at a certain point you're like, I don't even know who I am anymore if I'm not these things. And for a long time, like that was completely true. Um, but now I'm, I'm, you know, a wife, I'm a cat mom, I'm a plant mom. <laughs> um, I'm a daughter. Like I'm all, I'm a lot of other things that aren't related to work. And uh, I think, it's been important to me to make the space and time to invest in that stuff. Like that's the stuff that you remember, right? Like when you are on your deathbed, you're gonna remember the time you spent with friends and family and not that like one meeting that you stayed up until 2 a.m. to create the presentation deck for, right? Um, You're gonna forget all about that because that stuff doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It's not important. Um, So just valuing myself independently from that and also like valuing all the other things outside of work that um, make life worth living, you know? I think I have two things to say to that. It's one, I think so many post-grad students, like people who are one to two years out of school, they align themselves so much to job titles because so much of our college experience is about building towards a career. And if they're not able to achieve that right out of graduation, they feel really worthless and they start to question mm-hmm. everything that they've learned, everything they, that they've worked for. And it's really sad because I've seen the most talented illustrators feel like that their work isn't worthy because it's not compatible with something a company wants or because they're not getting freelance work as heavily as other illustrators. 
I think I'm still in the process of unlearning that and also not attaching mm-hmm. myself to my job title because for a very long time I surrendered to a lot of toxic work patterns because I wanted to be the best artist, the best illustrator I could be for my team at work, which is still, mm-hmm. I think, good. It's just I need to remind myself that that's not all I am. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't be the pinnacle of my personality. My mm-hmm. therapist was saying, being a designer, being an illustrator is not a personality trait. Right. Which is funny because that's the first thing that we mention to people when we meet them at parties, right? It's like, mm-hmm. what do you do for work? Like the very first thing that I'm normally asked when I enter a party is that. It's like, who are you? What do you do? I, I think it's a cultural thing. I, I don't think other countries are so obsessed with work. I really think it's like a Western and maybe even specific to the United States. Like we are, we see ourselves as like independent, single people. Success is how we are valued and like personal success, right? Like not like the success of a team or a family or a unit. It's your specific success. And um, I think that, yeah, that puts a lot of unfair pressure on people. I think also it's a failure of our education system. Um, You know, I experienced the same thing in school as I think you did in many ways where there was really only one path, right? It's you're a freelance illustrator or you're nothing, right? And we were told stories of people who failed at it. I was even told by a teacher once, he had a friend um, who was also an illustrator graduated um, and ended up getting a job at a bank to make ends meet while he tried to jumpstart his career, but he never left the bank. And my teacher saw this as a bad thing. And I internalized that. I was like, oh my God, like if I'm not working as an illustrator, I failed. If I can't make it freelancing, I failed. Um, But actually there's like so many different ways of defining success, right? Um, for that guy that worked at the bank, maybe he didn't want to be an illustrator, or maybe like that just wasn't how he defined himself either, right? And being a banker was okay with him. Um, maybe being successful meant being able to buy a house, have a family, or just support himself. Like that's enough, you know? Like being able to support yourself is enough. Um, and I just don't think schools, especially in like creative fields, um, do a good job. Actually, I would say specific to illustration. I should I shouldn't make a blanket statement. <laughs> I can't back up. I don't know what other departments are like. But for illustration, I really feel like they don't do a great job of exposing us to the full spectrum and range of ways you can be an artist. There's literally as many ways to be an artist as there are people, right? Um, there's no single path. Like, and and to to pretend like there is, is a false narrative that is really damaging. Like you said, you have friends who two years into their careers are like, I'm a failure. Um, and we've taught them that. And that sucks. Like that's, that's, I don't think any teacher, if you went to them now and said like, this is what you told me would want that to be the case. Um, but it is. And I, I felt similarly. And, and sometimes I actually, when I started working in corporate, uh, corporate life, I felt like a failure. And I felt like my illustrator friend saw me as a failure because I couldn't make it, couldn't make enough money to support myself in the Bay Area, which is already like <laughs> crazy, right? Um, on freelance gigs. And and I actually 
I don't think ever really was fully supporting myself only on freelance gigs. I always had a side job. I always had something else going on, working retail or, um, you know, I was making jewelry at one point for like a jewelry designer, like working in her basement, um, you know, like doing whatever I could so that I could supplement that freelance career because it was impossible for me to make a living off it. Um, and I was embarrassed of that. I was like, oh, well, I'm not good enough. And that's why. And I just, I don't, that's not true. A, um, illustration fees have not increased since like the fifties. And so the amount that we're getting paid is wildly under what is actually a livable wage and what our work is worth. Um, and it's getting worse, I think. Um, it's not, so it's like recognizing all those external factors um, and, and also accepting that like, again, like being an illustrator is not the only thing about me and reframing my idea of success. Um, that success looks like many different things and you get to decide that. Nobody else gets to decide that. Um, and making a conscious effort to kind of unlearn um, what we've been taught about what, what success actually looks like. Um, it's hard. Um, and I think I've only recently kind of come into that where I no longer feel like a failure for not just being a full-time freelancer. Um, I'm no longer embarrassed to tell people where I work. I would used to like, that would be like the third thing. If you ask me like, what do you do? <laughs> I would say illustrator. I'm like, Oh, what kind of illustrator? I'm like, Oh, tech, you know? Oh, well, which tech company? Then I might tell you, <laughs> you know, like it's like three layers down. Um, Present me again rolling in for a side tangent. Isn't it funny how there's always something that's disrupting our pride or confidence towards what we've built? There's a really weird dichotomy between the illustration world and corporate world. A lot of old school illustrators harbor a certain kind of elitism where any submission to a big corporation beyond a commission is equivalent to creative surrenderance, aka the 9 to 5 job kills creativity. But that's not true. You can still hold a lot of creative autonomy within the structure of an office job. Thankfully, companies are also evolving. And let's be real, the big companies, they pay. For the longest time, artists were plagued with the starving artist narrative. And now that we have roles that can promise more security, corporate artists and designers are often shamed for quote-unquote selling out. Is there a really more noble way to create art? Does accessibility to sustainable jobs and salaries deplete the value of our art? I really don't think that should be the case. Why is there so much shame surrounding money in the art world? Perhaps these are questions for another episode. But Shannon does dive a bit deeper into her take on that discourse. That's a lot of people's pride and joy on their resume. And the fact that that couldn't be for you when it is for so many other people, purely because of that illustration narrative that you had built from college. It's, mm -hmm. I relate to it a lot. And it's also like very bittersweet because I do hold a lot of heart and value for editorial illustration still, but it's definitely not the only form of illustration that's a viable career. And I feel mm -hmm. heartbroken for students that still align themselves with that narrative only because there's so many other options, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there, there are tons of options. And the other thing that always makes me feel kind of weird is realizing that for some people, 
working at the big G tech company is their dream. That for them is the idea of success, right? Ultimate success. They've like, I've met people who are like, oh, I've always wanted to work here. I'm so excited. I'm like, cool. (laughs) (laughs) For me, that's what is seen as kind of a negative thing, right? Like in our art circles, like it could be perceived as a negative thing. Um, So I'm always kind of like cautious when I'm talking to other folks at Google about careers and stuff, like not to be too dismissive of it because I do think it's, I mean, it's a huge company, but it's a very reputable company and you know, it, it's hard to get here. Um, and you know, it's not a hundred percent talent and skill. It's also a bit of luck and like having the right opportunities. Um, but you know, it is a, it is a, a reputable place to work. And, um, sometimes I kind of just have to remind myself of that I think, and this is sort of a digression, but it's also hard living in the Bay area and working at Google or any tech company for that matter, because there is such a, a antagonistic relationship between, you know, folks who grew up here, um, being displaced by folks moving in to take these tech jobs and ramping up the rent. This is true. A lot of tech jobs have transformed cities like San Francisco, Seattle, and New York into vast empires, but not necessarily for the better. Separate from the artistic elitism I mentioned before, the struggle of displacement through tech corporation growth is absolutely real. And this is a bigger conversation surrounding gentrification, houselessness, capitalism, and community disruption. I think artists who work in tech are not blind to this. Those who are in the tech bubble are privileged with a lot of things and can indeed lose sight of what is important. Another question I'd like to tackle in a future episode is how can tech still empower users without stripping away so much from their communities? How can artists in tech specifically do something to aid that? And how can we dismantle capitalism while still thriving, while still gaining financial fluency and stability? Um, just to be fair to art school, like there was a there was a bit of that in why I didn't want to share that with people because my circles are not tech circles. Like the people that I hang out with are punks. Like, and I don't mean that it's like a derogatory term. Like they literally are punks. They play in punk bands. They, you know, many of them work service jobs. Um, some of them work in like um, social services, right? They're working with folks who are homeless, and so you know, like advertising, oh, I work at, you know, this big tech company and they pay way more than anybody deserves to make, in my opinion, um, kind of also made me very uncomfortable because it felt like they're, once I started there, there almost became this weird uh, socioeconomic divide almost. Um, and, and I think it was totally internalized. Like no, nothing anybody said to me, like of my friends, was negative about this at all. It was totally me projecting it on them and feeling insecure about it. Or not, insecure is maybe not the right word, just conscious of it, maybe. So I think there's an aspect of that to it as well. But it's also mostly art school. (laughs) My last question for you is, what is one thing you'd like to say to your 25-year-old self? There's a couple things, I think. One is that it's okay to not have everything figured out. Again, I think similar to what we were just saying about just school and kind of what we're taught and also society, like it's expected that you graduate and you get a job and you are successful and like you kind of know 
what's going on and you know what you want to do, right? Everybody asks you like, oh, what are you going to do after you graduate? Like, what job are you going to get? It's like, who the hell knows, really? Like, there's no, there's no way of knowing. And trying to like, almost like, like manifest that path of like, and like pretending to know, I think actually closes you to opportunities um, that otherwise would be great. Um, I think I will say to my 25 year old self, I think I was pretty good at that. <laughs> I, again, I really didn't have any expectations. I kind of was just willing to do whatever. Um, so I was pretty flexible back then, but I do think that I felt insecure about the fact that I didn't really know what was going on or what I wanted to do or what, you know, what my goals were. Right. So I'd also tell myself that, and this is especially true. I think of like entering like an actual workplace and not just being a freelancer, but that it's okay to ask questions. Um, again, I think we were talking about this earlier where it's sort of expected that you're an expert, like you join this company and, and you also, you feel like you have something to prove, right? Like everybody there is so smart and so capable. It's like, if I ask questions, I'm going to look stupid. But I, I, I really wish that I had spent more time asking questions and learning and being okay with the fact that I didn't know. Um, also, just like, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's going to be okay. Um, you know, like, it can be really scary being right out of school like that. And again, you feel that pressure to be whatever successful folks are expecting you to be. And um, and again, like if you don't achieve that, you feel like you've failed and it's like, no, it's okay. It's just okay. It might not be perfect right now. Right. But like you're 25, like you a whole life ahead of you. You're a baby. Um, and, and, and I guess that's the thing too, is like, there's this sort of expectation that like you learned everything you needed to learn in school. And now you just go out into the world and like do the job. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's the school taught you like nothing. It taught you a tiny sliver of things. There's so much more to learn and do and experience. And again, I think like a lot of us like close ourselves off to that because we're like, oh, well, I don't know anything about that. That's like, no, dude, like be inquisitive, be curious, learn about it. If you don't know it, like you, you're fully capable of learning about it if you want to, you know, um, you're not done learning. Um, and so it's okay to not know, and it's okay to be in uncomfortable situations. Um, and like, I, I embrace that now. Um, I, I like to be uncomfortable because it forces you to learn something new. So if you're only ever doing the things that you know how to do, it's going to get pretty boring, I think. Um, so yeah, just basically telling myself it's okay and it's going to be okay. I think I'm just on the very cusp of accepting that because for so long perfection was what I did strive for even though I knew it was unattainable but recently my grandmother had a relapse in her health and she hasn't been feeling too good but in a way I think there's a silver lining to all of it because seeing her mortality in front of me when Mm -hmm. I'm at an age where I'm just beginning to understand my own skin it made me realize, what am I so afraid of? I'm just mm-hmm. beginning, I'm still young, and this is the time to be making mistakes. This is the time to be crashing and burning so I can be the best mm-hmm. version of myself. So why am I beating myself up over something like, 
I did like months ago or why am I still not letting myself grow into the version I want to be because I'm so married to this narrative of myself that I built in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I feel that. Um, and the thing is, it's like perfect. Not only is it unattainable, it literally doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. There is no perfect. There might be like a, a version of yourself that you want to be that's different than what you are now, but that's like not becoming perfect either. It's just, it's just, it's like curating. <laughs> um, it's just like curating the traits that you want to see. Again, like school does beat into us to like be perfect and but it like literally doesn't exist. There is no one perfect person or way to be. It's all based on our context, right? And the people that we're around and the job that we're doing and the kind of person we want to be, like everybody's perfect is different. So like how can it be a thing? I do think that similar to what we were saying earlier, like recognizing the mortality, right? And also saying to yourself, like, well, what do I really, what really matters to me? What do I want to do with my life? Is my job the most important thing? Probably not, right? Like, and I think when you can accept that and maybe, maybe shift the idea of success to like being a good friend, right? Like, was I a good friend today? Was I a good granddaughter today? And not like, did I do a good job in that meeting? Um, Is a much more, I think, sustainable way to kind of value ourselves. Some takeaways from my conversation with Shannon. Work is important and it's good to stay curious to grow. But work also isn't everything. Perfection isn't attainable because it simply doesn't exist. And there are as many ways to be an artist as there are artists. So do your own thing. And of course, there are lots of things outside of work or even your identity as a creative that make life beautiful and worthwhile. Maybe it's having tea with your roommate in the afternoon. Maybe it's cooking a lovely meal with your partner. Maybe it's that overdue FaceTime call with your mom. Maybe it's waiting for the sun each day to engulf your room in its golden hour glory. Or maybe it's just simply accepting that you will only get to experience who you are now in this very moment. This is the Doing Fine Podcast. My name is Aisha Kang, and I'll catch you next time.